Hi, I'm Dr. Scott. And I'm Dr. Shiloh. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the vintage Los Angeles case of the Green Scarf Bandit. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. How are you doing this morning, Dr. Scott? Great. Thank you for coming over for dinner <laughs> last night. It was so good to do our family time. We haven't had a chance to do that in a very long time. I feel like the new year has actually started now that we've gotten together for yeah. New Year's or just kicking it off and spending some time together. It was lovely. Thank you for hosting. We had such a good time. I, you know, thank you for thanking me, but I can't take... I, I cleaned things up. I zhuzhed and put some decorations out. My husband cooked a phenomenal meal. He <laughs> really did. was off the hook. Yeah. And for a recipe he's never cooked before, right? Yeah. yeah. Insane. It's insane. He's such a scientist about cooking and like he'll it. look at it and go, oh, this, yeah, this will be great. And so, yeah. <laughs> well, and I was just thinking as we hopped on today that going over my list of our little gift exchange. So I brought you a bottle of wine that basically has the death head moth on it from yeah. Silence of the Lambs. Should be a decent bottle of wine. Even though I'm not a huge Pinot Noir fan, I was like, okay, this, this looks like a good bottle of wine. You got me a puzzle of the feeling wheel, which is so perfect. <laughs> and then I got Dr. Scott a saint candle and it's saint, Dr. Reed Malloy. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> we need to we need to find him on social media and see if we can tag him in a picture of that. It's wonderful. You know, I actually had sent a picture when I was getting it made to Dr. John Delatori. And I was uh, like, I need someone to understand this. So I'm sending it to you to show you what I'm getting Scott for Christmas. <laughs> He's like, oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. For I mean, I'm sure for those of you who have listened, we mentioned Dr. Malloy a lot, but Reed Malloy really kind of just hits this trifecta in our field. He is yeah. really an, an A-game player and also just the most approachable, professional, laid-back, surfer dude, wonderful, engaging. I mean, I will say there are some brilliant people in our field that I have great respect for, and they mm -hmm. are a bit strange. Yeah, that's <laughs> a great maybe way that, to put Maybe it. that's part of their genius, but He's some of the them are package. a bit strange. But Dr. Malloy is just amazing. And <laughs> if you ever get a chance, anybody out there, if you ever get a chance to listen to him interviewed or see anything that he presents on, if you're in the mental health field, he does do speaking engagements. He's fascinating. He's on the cutting edge of research in psychopathy, and it's fascinating. Yes. So with that, I wanted to tell everyone about our live stream this month. It's going to be on January 27th, and it's going to be with some some listeners who are going to share their forensic psych or forensic psych adjacent career paths. And I know a lot of you have wanted to hear about that. Some other than, you know, what we've told you about how we have gotten to this point in our careers. So we have some lovely listeners that are going to join us. I think it's going to be great. That will be live on YouTube, normal time, 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Go ahead and look in the show notes and I put a link to our YouTube channel there. So just go ahead and subscribe now so you don't miss it. You don't even have to think about it. And it's going to be our 54th live stream. That's wild. wild. That is just wild. Yeah. Where do we put the time to do all this is just yeah. what I keep thinking. <laughs> yeah, that's that's enough. That's a conversation for another <laughs> cocktail party. Yeah. Right. 
So what is, as Ms. Spears says, oops, we did it again. We <laughs> dove into the bad behavior in our last episode of individuals of the clergy, another profession that has really an innate authority status and really a sacred trust for mm -hmm. people who are believers, who are not believers. They are, you know, clergy are really supposed to be bound by confidentiality and do no harm, much as mental and medical professionals are supposed to. So we give a historical overview and really just an overview because there are so many different directions you can go and we're actually going to be following up. But we give a historical overview of organized religious atrocities before getting into some examples of individuals' crimes. And we also dove into the research that tries to explain the Catholic sex abuse scandal from a very big perspective that goes back you know, a century or more, right? And address relevant personality traits before finally covering the Warren Jeffs case. And in part two, which will be after this episode, we're going to be looking at the survivors' experiences, and that will come out after this episode comes out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so here we are with our first vintage case of the year. And it seems like the term home invasion robbery is fairly new. And I really think it's difficult to think of something scarier than a home invasion robbery. You know, someone coming into your space and just seems terrifying overall. And that's what our story is going to focus on today. But this one takes place in the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't really ventured into the fifties yet in our vintage episodes. And I think we've only sort of tangentially mentioned home invasion as part of other crimes that have been committed, but let's take a, a moment to look at what life was like in LA during this decade. And just in general, the United States at this time, the average family income was about $4,421 with men earning $3,400 and women earning about $1,100. Now, before you think that that's an incredibly <laughs> low amount, you have to like yeah. think in today's adjustments. As an example that Dr. Shiloh provided, which is really perfect and always a really good measure is how much is bread, right? Like sort of right. a survival staple, whether it's good for you or not. But bread was only 18 cents a loaf. Coffee was 93 cents a pound. But boy, that oh is <laughs> really different now, right? And an electric washing machine would have set you back a cool 69 dollars and 95 cents. Oh my gosh. So, I think I spent that on Amazon yesterday. <laughs> see, I, right. $69 yeah, yeah, yeah. just on crap. <laughs> it's so weird, especially, you know, I mean, and my age, no, but like to think of like, I had this comparison over all these decades of, so I have to think, no, 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 I'm not spending that much relatively, you know, you right. have to, for me, I have to make that adjustment, but the post-World War II boom from the end of the war into the fifties affected every corner of the country, but few places were changed by the economic and cultural shifts as much as Los Angeles, truly. The city increased by half a million people, which was a significant amount of influx at that time. Time. Uh, most of the people were drawn to the year-round moderate climate. There was development growth of various thriving industries, including Air Force, all sorts of factories, machine metal, and even housing was driven by vets coming back from World War II. We have housing, really like expensive housing that was built as sort of almost barrack style to like, yeah. we got to get it built up for these families that are coming back. But we also had thriving industries and the expansion, some people would call it urban sprawl, but it gave a suburban feel for parents and their 2.5 children. That's right. So I think there's something, I mean, 
clearly there are a lot of things that we love about Los Angeles, but even at that time, it felt like the perfect blend of a big city, but still small town vibes, giving you places to go at night and places to live where you could just travel, you know, 20 minutes into the big bustling city. Yeah, there was a lot more room back then, obviously. I mean, notoriously, we've always been very spread out, but neighborhoods were spread out in the sense that they were sort of these little oases off by themselves, still surrounded by undeveloped land and forest areas. But we had the highways and interstates that were up and running by this time. And Angelinos loved their cars just as we do now. Oh, yeah. But, you know, this time there was a big smog emergency that happened in the mid 50s with really some severe medical side effects that were happening where people were reporting burning eyes and painful breathing. A lot of biochemical changes were starting to be seen in the body so bad that it was in hospital admissions and emergency room visits soared during this time. So thank goodness they did something about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, LA has really come a long way. It's just wild to think of that now. When I moved to SoCal in the late 80s, I didn't even realize there was a mountain range here for the oh first, probably the first eight months, because prior to that, for literal decades, we had this thin to thick, yellow, sludgy smudge of smog Mm -hmm. that just blanketed most of the communities out here. And you would only see it clear after a major rain, which was kind of amazing. But going back to what you're talking about, the health issues, there was a time in Los Angeles, and this is talked about in various documentaries about law enforcement pathology, not law enforcement pathology, but medical pathologists talking about when they found a deceased individual on the streets of Los Angeles, they could tell how long they had been in the city based on an autopsy of the lungs. So even if it was a young person that was in their 20s, maybe they die of a drug overdose, or they die of exposure, an autopsy could tell them how long they had been here just due to the exposure. And a lot of that changed because of the Olympics, because one of the things mm -hmm. that happened was in order to get the air to a healthy level for the athletes, performing outside. They went to this very, what was considered draconian measure at the time where you had to alternate commuting yeah. and it made this enormous impact. Well, you know what? It wasn't draconian. I take that back. It was volunteer. The city like really kind of promoted okay. this volunteer thing. But what they saw was just this immediate change. Oh, yeah in the weather. And that really pushed forward these efforts to keep, get our air clear. Yeah. I mean, my kid thinks it's crazy when I talk about like days where we didn't go outside yeah. because, or have PE class or what have you because of smog alerts. She's and like, you what? Were, <laughs> and right. And you were out in the areas where the temperatures can be 10 to 15 degrees higher yes. during the summers, right? Very true. Very true. Well, and, and speaking of that, in 1955, LA experienced one of its worst heat waves in recorded history. So the temperature reached over 100 degrees for eight consecutive days in the late summer. And fortunately, Angelinos were able to flock to the beaches where there were some recorded numbers of over 300,000 people finding relief during this time in the Pacific Ocean. Yes, which was pristine at that time. Now, after <laughs> a was. rain, 
They like do not go to the beaches after a rain. They really don't want you to. And speaking of beaches, Muscle Beach in Santa Monica had its heyday in the 1950s with acrobats, bodybuilders, all working out, performing stunts. And this was part of a very popular tourist attraction. Drive-in restaurants, drive-in movies were all the rage in the 50s. And Angelinos had many perks of living in a major city that had relatively moderate temperatures all year round. Downtown LA was a very busy, boisterous place to be during the day with tons of employment options. And once it got dark, downtown had this wonderfully vibrant nightlife scene that was very culturally and racially diverse. It was really kind of cutting edge for the United States at that time. Yeah, certainly. So turning to crime in LA at the time, the rapid population growth, of course, brought about many challenges. And we've certainly talked about this with the different decades, but that includes an increase in crime. So LAPD Chief Parker addressed the California Peace Officers Association at their annual conference discussing the challenges in recruitment. And this conference was in 1956. So he, you know, it's, it was interesting to read this paper based on his talk because he's talking about the struggles in recruitment, which is obviously something law enforcement is struggling with today. But in that he notes that there was a 35% increase in major crimes in Los Angeles from just the previous year, which was just wild to see as a statistic, which, I mean, I'm sure he couldn't fudge it too much. I also want to say that I realize he's talking about trying to advocate for more law enforcement. So, right. you know, how they recorded those numbers can be dicey sometimes still. Well, I mean, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that is something even within law enforcement where, you know, you have conversations and they go, well, it's just hard to completely trust the numbers because yeah. who who's doing the stats, who's counting the numbers and how are those being interpreted, right? Yeah, exactly. I hear that all the time. I even work with some people who be like, did you see the press release where they were talking about how great this human trafficking sting went, but it was really just like the average number of sex workers they arrest on a normal night in this part of the city. Right. Like you can but spin there, it. There's a spin, want. right. Yeah. Well, at, at this time in the 50s, the city saw a rise in gang activities, particularly in neighborhoods facing economic hardships. And the iconic image of the glamorous Hollywood lifestyle coexisted with a darker reality of urban issues and social tensions. The 1950s in Los Angeles marked a period of transition as the city grappled with the consequences of its own success and struggled to manage the social dynamics that contributed to fluctuations in these crime rates during this really pivotal decade. So for reference, you know, a lot of people think about this time period. Elizabeth Short's murder was actually in 1947. So that was a bit before the time period we're focusing on today. And as we well know from doing these episodes, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s all had their share of really gruesome crimes with each sort of decade specific population boom that we saw. But the 50s really saw a notable rise in organized crime in the form of the Sicilian mafia. So their presence in the Southland peaked during this time and began to spread throughout California. Although we typically kind of think of them being more active in Chicago and the East Coast. And this got me thinking that perhaps we could cover a vintage gangster mafia related crime later this year. That'd be fun. Yeah, that'd be great. And what you're talking about is very notable because in the 50s, LA was really marked by a, a pretty impressive shadow of political corruption. And it was really starting to affect the city's reputation on a national level. And then that kind of trickles back or reflects back 
into the public's view of the integrity of our leadership, basically. And during that era, Los Angeles witnessed several high-profile cases of not only political scandal, but also misconduct. And one of the most notorious instances was the influence of organized crime on local politics. There were allegations of bribery, payoffs, collusion between politicians, along with these criminal elements. I mean, in a way, it's nothing new. All of these things had been prevalent in major U.S. cities in decades past, but now it was really reaching kind of a big sort of explosion point, I think, at, at this time. The LAPD faced a lot of scrutiny for instances of police corruption that got into the news. And that's significant because it clearly was getting out of their ability to spin. So when yeah. it's at the point where people know about things and people can't spin it, you know something's going on. The scandals really eroded public trust in political institutions, but it also highlighted the blurred lines between legitimate governance and illicit activities. The exposure of corrupt practices during the 50s prompted increased scrutiny and reforms in subsequent decades, leading efforts to root out corruption and then attempt to restore confidence in the political landscape of Los Angeles. Yeah, I think it's really difficult to discuss crime rates at certain points in history. One, right. yes, because like we said, the data is just not there sometimes. I mean, it was really hard to find crime statistics for Los Angeles prior to 1960. And with the internet, I'm like, I can find anything. But this was a lot of the data and research that starts being done by outside institutions seems to start in the 60s for some right. reason. But also, I think it's just impossible to compare and contrast or even kind of wrap your head around crime at certain periods of time because of the vast differences in population, the societal factors, the way law enforcement is doing their job and allocating resources and keeping that data. So it's almost like trying to wrap your head around the price of a loaf of bread back then. Like it's just totally, totally different time periods. But hopefully, you know, that review gave you guys a little bit of taste of what it was like. Other high profile crimes in the 50s include the Los Villas murder mansion tragedy, the death of George Reeves. He was the actor that played Superman on television that a lot of people insist that was not a suicide. Right. And then we have Mickey Cohen's bodyguard stabbed by Lana Turner's daughter, which maybe that's our next vintage case. Yeah, <laughs> we I, need to I do actually, that one. <laughs> yeah, I thought about that. That actually was one of the first ones that came up for this one. So oh, now that, yeah. yeah, let's we'll set the schedule that for the next one. Okay, but let's get to today's case. All right. So on a chilly morning of December 10th, 1951, a sinister figure shrouded in a green scarf invaded the home of supermarket manager B.G. Jones and his wife Juanita. Brandishing a weapon, the intruder brutally attacked B.G. with a leaded sap, which is a small leather pouch that's filled with lead beads or lead bullets, mm -hmm. which is, it, it's a really brutal way to hit somebody it and it can cause a lot of bone damage. It's not good. Juanita screams after seeing her husband attacked and the assailant gruffly asked if there was anybody else in the house. And they told him only person there was their young son, Jimmy, and he was asleep. However, there's a twist in the story right here that as actually is very important. Unbeknownst to the intruder, Jimmy, who was eight years old, was not asleep. He was playing possum. And that tactic was absolutely deliberately taught him by his father. The reason BG, his father, had previously warned Jimmy about this technique was because there was a series of crimes 
allegedly perpetrated by one criminal who was targeting supermarket managers at night, advising him to pretend to sleep in case there was a break in and then alert the authorities. So scary. It's so scary to think that that was so prevalent and how are you going to protect yourself against an invader? Are they going to break the glass? Are they going to come through the window? Are they going to blast through? Again, the population was not as dense at that time with buildings all within earshot of each right. other. So here's this person who said, like, looking at the profile of this perpetrator, hey, I might be on the, the list next. I need to take all these precautions and make sure my son knows what to do. And it worked. Because of that instruction, once he was safe, Jimmy snuck out of his room and contacted by phone the sheriff's Montrose substation reporting that his parents had been abducted during his faking his sleep. So the green scarf bandit who we're going to be talking about had basically at gunpoint had pulled out his parents and put them in a car. Right. So right. here's Jimmy sneaking to the phone and calling not even 911 because that didn't exist then. He would have been given a number to call. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about neighbors and houses not being like on top of each other. Montrose is a sleepy little neighborhood now. Like I can't imagine what it was back then. You know, the Montrose, La Cunada area, very quaint, really adorable, nice, safe place to live still. Shortly before this incident, the Green Scarf Bandit had a much more successful home invasion at the residence of Alfred Bogler. So Alfred recounted to investigators a conversation he had with the masked intruder. He said when we asked him about our two sleeping children, he replied that he expressed concern for their safety, mentioning the cold weather and the potential danger if a night watchman initiated any gunfire. He assured us that if we cooperated by driving him to the store and opening the safe, we'd be back home safely within 30 minutes. Although the intruder wielded a firearm, it was evident he wasn't entirely indifferent to the well-being and comfort of the young children. As Barbara, four, and Karen, 18 months, slept, Bogler drove his wife and the robber to the local market. Upon their arrival at the store, the armed individual used his wife as a hostage while Alfred, equipped with a passkey, deactivated the burglar alarm. Throughout this situation, the intruder repeatedly apologized, explaining the severity of the consequences he would suffer if the operation didn't proceed flawlessly due to the strict demands of his boss. And following the successful looting of two safes at that market, the bandit allowed the Boglers to exit their vehicle at the intersection of Altura and Pennsylvania Avenue. They promptly contacted Montrose Sheriff Station, the same station that young Jimmy Jones would call a few days later, and walked the short distance back to their home. Once they were reunited safely with their two children, they sought refuge at the residence of Alfred's brother, William. And after what is likely a night of true traumatic response in the Boglers, their return home resulted in yet another encounter with the Green Scarf Bandit only six hours later. The same Green Scarfed gunman was waiting for them in their kitchen saying, you double-crossed me. My boss doesn't like that. We missed one safe. So then the Boglers were kidnapped a second time, returning them to the market where they emptied the third safe for the bandit. Jeez, that's pretty brazen. And now we're talking about like two families, two supermarkets in the same area. Like Montreux Sheriff Station must be like, what the hell is happening? Well, it makes a lot of, I mean, it does make a lot of sense. It's like this worked, you know, we yeah. planned this out. It did work. I intimidated them and now I'm going to try it again. So here we are a couple of weeks later back at little Jimmy rushing to the phone, right? So yes, going back to the Jones kidnapping, little Jimmy calls the sheriff's department and in responding to Jimmy's call, deputies Joe Reith 
and J.R. Sheldon sped off to the shopping bag market, which was located at 920 Foothill Boulevard in La Cunata at the time. They arrived to find BG stalling the bandit. And in a dramatic turn, the criminal then flees and collides with an off-duty deputy named John Davis, who also responded to the robbery in progress. And despite Davis's orders to surrender, the bandit just continues to keep running. So a pursuit ensues with Wreath and Sheldon firing at the fleeing suspect, injuring him critically before he collapsed in Davis's car, attempting to escape. The suspect initially claimed to be Jim Marcus, but he was soon identified as James Monroe Rudolph of Placerville, California, which is up in the Sacramento area. And a search of Rudolph's car near the Jones residence unveiled critical and condemning evidence. Numerous empty money sacks, rolls of coins, cash, a 45 caliber pistol, a Las Vegas police badge, a knockout solution, which is a nice term for chloroform-ish, yeah. <laughs> and the incriminating green scarf. Further investigations led detectives to Rudolph's wife, Inga, in Placerville. And despite her claims of ignorance about her husband's crimes, she finally surrendered a lot of luxury items to the detectives, items believed to be purchased with the proceeds of Rudolph's crimes. So I'm wondering, is Inga the boss that he was so scared Ooh, of? Probably. Maybe. <laughs> While Rudolph's fate hung in the balance at the hospital, young Jimmy Jones was lauded for his courage by L.A. Sheriff Biscalouse, who awarded him a miniature sheriff's badge and stated that the boy's bravery was a rare instance of valor in such a young child. So now you'll likely remember the name of Sheriff Biscalouse from our previous vintage episode on Clara Phillips, also known as the Tiger Woman. Biscalouse and his wife escorted Ms. Phillips back to Los Angeles by train after her wild escape in 1932. So clearly, Biscalouse had quite the career, long oh, yeah. career. Yep, he sure did. I yeah. think we even have a Biscalouse training center up in the hills, right? Yep. Up in the up in the valley, there's a firing range. That's where I did all my firearms training in the academy. We did our training there a couple of years ago because they have the miniature city. So yep. we were practicing getting in and out of cars during firing going on about how to oh. use the door as protection or how to use corners of a building. It's fascinating stuff because it's like a little post office and like a little <laughs> billing station and streets. Fascinating. So while law enforcement and the DA were eager to get Rudolph in front of a judge, his physical condition put a considerable delay on the court proceedings. Apparently, there were so many stolen items found in the Rudolph home in Placerville that the investigators realized it would take a great deal of time to sort through it, determine what items were related to which crimes. And then this process would involve the sorting, but then transporting, filing, and official placement into evidence back here in Los Angeles. The final estimated worth of the pilfered loot was about $60,000 at the time, which would have been over half a million dollars today. And I'm just like, why is he coming down to this area? This is something that's like left open for me. They're up in the Sacramento area. What is it about Montrose, La Cunata, LA? <laughs> and that is what's very frustrating about this particular crime. 
I think it's one of the reasons I was drawn to it because there is actually so little information. Yeah. Even yeah. just using the example of Clara Phillips, because she was sort of a, a star, right? She was one of those several women at that time that got tons of press. There's a lot of exploration of the crime itself and how did mm -hmm. it happen and what was going on. And you're asking like a really great question. Like, why are you traveling? Especially at that time, I can understand the motivation. Well, let me commit crimes as far away from my residence residents as possible. Right. I get that. Right. But like that's pushing it and then choosing a suburb of a major city. I don't know. Maybe that was part of his critical thinking of like, how can I lower my risk of getting caught? But it seems like by creating that possibility or that safety measure, you're actually creating a lot more possibility for yourself to get caught. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it does make me think, okay, there probably is like a bigger boss involved here because oh, okay. the scouting is like excellent, right? Because he does that one robbery and then comes back and is like, oh shit, they told me there was one safe I didn't get to. So someone scouted the fact that there were three safes at that location. So there is an immense amount of planning. He might just be the idiot that <laughs> they're sending out to do it. Well, isn't that interesting um, then? Because we couldn't know. find any additional information on who the boss nope. was. He basically nope. took the fall for all of it. He right? sure did. And when he was finally cleared for appearance in court by his doctors, James Monroe Rudolph appeared on January 30th in the court for arraignment by municipal judge F. Ray Bennett. Rudolph was charged with five counts of robbery, four of attempted robbery, nine of kidnapping, and two of false imprisonment. Rudolph, recovering from his injuries, eventually confessed to all of his string of crimes. These charges stemmed from four robberies that involved markets or grocery stores, cash which was estimated to be in the thousands, as we said before, and despite the prolific and profitable nature of his crimes, the heavy hitter in the charges was the kidnapping. It was yeah. a very big deal. Yeah, so the kidnapping actions fell under the Little Lindbergh Law, making him eligible for the death penalty. However, by pleading guilty to lesser charges, Rudolph avoided this fate and was sentenced to five years to life. So the Little Lindbergh Law, or just the Lindbergh Law, which we have mentioned in previous episodes, is the Federal Kidnapping Act, obviously named after famed aviator Charles Lindbergh and enacted in the United States in 1932, was in response to the high-profile kidnapping and murder of Charles Lindbergh's infant son, Charles Lindbergh Jr. The law made it a federal offense to kidnap someone and transport them across state lines. Prior to the Lindbergh law, kidnapping was primarily a state-level crime, but this federal law was created to give the federal government jurisdiction in cases where kidnappers transported their victims across state borders, or it was unknown if they've been transported across state borders. So the feds can get involved fairly early in kidnappings if that is a potential. This was seen as a way to combat the rising trend of kidnappings and ransom demands during that era. And the Lindbergh Law laid the foundation for federal involvement in kidnapping cases and had a significant impact on the investigation and prosecution of such crimes in the United States. It's an important part of American criminal law history just because there's a lot of it that still stands today. Yes. And Rudolph knew that he was in deep trouble with the Lindbergh Law. When he was apprehended in 1951, there was another career criminal by the name of Carol Chessman, also known as the Red Light Bandit. And they had already been put on California's death row for a charge of kidnapping. So Rudolph's grim knowledge of Chessman's weight on death row may 
have motivated him to plead guilty to the three felony charges, armed robbery, kidnapping for purpose of robbery, and false imprisonment. By utilizing this particular plea strategy, he was hoping to evade the death penalty, resulting in a startling, to me, sentence of five years to life. That's yeah. an, a kind of an, an unreal span. I haven't, I mean, certainly you don't hear about that today of mm. five years to life. That's just way too big. Now, Rudolph's story took another twist in Folsom Prison when he and cellmate Claude Newton attempted a very daring escape. Their plan, however, was foiled ultimately by the guards, leaving Warden A. Hines to comment on the failed escape attempt by saying everything was set to go on the escape, but it didn't work. They had done <laughs> sort of the typical thing of stuffing their clothes with rags to you yep. know, feign sleeping, but it just was not very successful it wasn't so successful simple. at all yeah. <laughs> he's like it was everything was set but didn't work <laughs> try again next time yeah and so interestingly enough he did eventually get out there's not a ton of information but what it looks like is that he did parole even mm -hmm. with that charge of kidnapping but then was reincarcerated 10 years later for other charges that were found in the case in our show notes. So there's a decade between those two. And then he just kind of disappears, which is very, very interesting. I was just going to like a total side note. Again, this report that I read that was based off of Chief Parker's presentation he gave at that conference. It was so interesting to read his take on California parole and the whole system and parole boards, because back in the 50s, there was basically this movement with the parole boards to sentence everyone that went to state prison, so felony sentences, right, to a five-year to life sentence. And it's just like indeterminate, like we'll figure it out along the way. And Chief Parker was actually advocating against that. He's like, no entity in law enforcement should have that much power to basically lock someone up and throw away the key with no rhyme or reason. So it was just, it just felt like a really interesting historical piece of right. law enforcement to read about. But he was saying of the violent crimes and all of the crime rise in the fifties, that half of those were perpetrated by people who were on parole actively at the time. So it seemed like there was this push and pull between law enforcement and then parole who were either wanting to keep people forever or kind of the same thing we talk about today, right? Like when is too early to let someone out and give them another chance? Or are they just going to kind of go back to this life of crime? And then people are victims of violent crime. Right. And that's not an easy decision because certainly parole boards are going to change. It's not the same people that stay on the parole board indefinitely, although in some states they tend to, but you know, there's a turnover and then there's also the pendulum that swings back and forth of being more for long-term and rigid and incarceration, and then it swings back to more flexibility. But I would say also today, as complex as our system is, there's at least a better understanding of criminality, recidivism, and all the factors that affect that, allowing for possibly better decisions to be made than yeah. what was available at the time. So there's a lot more information now, I think, about the profiles of people that are going to recidivate. Yeah. I don't know if I ever asked you this, and maybe I have, but when you worked for the prisons, did you ever have to testify at anyone's parole board? Would you act as a witness for any of that? I never had, and I, I had never heard of anybody doing it. So don't quote me. I'm not quoting, you know, I'm not saying that I know this for certain, but my understanding was that would be out of our scope of practice because you, this is the weird thing about 
system of incarceration is that for a mental health professional in that system, you are providing services to the inmates to address their mental health needs, their mental health concerns. However, the inmate is not your client. Yeah. yeah. Right. The state of California is your entity that you are providing services for. So I think that there would be a conflict of interest. I'm not sure. saying it hasn't happened, but it certainly never happened to me. There was one time that I did get subpoenaed by one of the inmates who was suing me for putting a chip in his head. Oh, okay. Yes. And yeah, thankfully different. there's a, a system of protections in place where a screener, I got a letter and I called the screener and the screener was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. That should never even have come. We, we dismiss those all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Unless you have that technology. Do you have that technology, Dr. I know, Scott, Dr. to Scott. put a chip in someone's head? <laughs> I mean, I guess they have to ask, right? Yeah, I guess so. So should we look at just home invasion crimes a little bit here? Home invasion crimes are typically where intruders forcibly enter a residence to commit a crime. And they are particularly traumatizing due to the violation of personal space and the heightened and overwhelming sense of vulnerability they create. I mean, you can imagine a lot of times it's when people are asleep, you're in your home. It's not what you're expecting to happen, right? You are completely caught off guard. And most often these individuals are armed with weapons. And there's many psychological effects that can arise from a home invasion, including feelings of mistrust, isolation, and fear. We also see that people who have been victims of these crimes experience depression, anxiety, panic attacks, sleeplessness, a lot of PTSD-like symptoms, which can include flashbacks, you know, waking recollections, all of that that is triggered by random events, you know, just being really activated from that previous traumatic exposure. We also see a decrease in socialization, which can be a mitigating factor in depression and anxiety, as well as other aspects of the victim's lifestyle and any changes that you might see from what was the norm before the event, as well as a lack of confidence and feelings of vulnerability, living in constant fear of, you know, essentially being the victim of, of another crime and perhaps even as specific as a repeat burglary. And they can become really hypervigilant around their safety, which again, goes hand in hand with PTSD-like symptoms. So there can almost be this obsession with home security and locked doors and cameras, of course, all in prevention of this ever happening again, because now their body is in hypervigilant mode, just really on edge, fearing for their safety. And this can bring some perceived sense of control around the situation. So we have a actually an increase in those here in the Southland due to a number of factors. It turns out that much like Rudolph's traveling in from another area, we've seen an increase in out-of-city groups, not necessarily gangs, but some of them gang affiliated coming from out of state or Northern California and yeah. setting targets of generally we have, well, we have a phenomenon that's happening here. That's not too great. It's called the McMansion crazy or the, <laughs> or the McMansion craze. I call it McMansion crazy. It's, it's where they take these really nice little plots of land in residential areas of Los Angeles and they tear down the beautiful craftsman home and they build these multi-million dollar McMansions that 
extend all the like the entire footprint of the plot of land yeah. and it'll be like a five or a six bedroom really tricked out house but what it does to the local economy is it kind of puts a spotlight like you know that whoever is living in one of these houses likely has a lot of cash on hand because mm -hmm. they're driving a fancy car they're wearing a rolex and those have become the targets uh, for yeah. multiple mo home invasion attempts. In fact, most recently, there was a very controversial case where a guy was followed home, but they had clearly put him on a profile because there were people waiting to jump over the hedge to uh, assail him. And he pulled out a gun and shot one of them. Yeah. So we yeah, it was have... a big case. Well, it's a big case because of CCW laws and things like right. that. He had a CCW permit. Yes. And thank goodness, because they had firearms and he was being robbed at gunpoint. He shot at them. They shot back. They fled. And the big hoopla here was that he got his CCW permit revoked after all of this. And so, of course, people were like, oh, my God, what's happening? But. I also think they have to do an investigation, right? I'm sure clearly there's something going back. on there, right? But, but yes, in the last several years, probably since COVID-ish years, we've had these follow-home robberies, which in the Los Angeles area, there's been, a, you know, such an increase that several law enforcement entities have gotten together. They put together a task force on this. 2023 saw a huge rise in Asian Americans being targeted for more yes. of these follow home, home invasion type of attacks in Los Angeles, especially if they were business owners. And then, you know, kind of adjacent to this, as I think about feeling very vulnerable and like you're in a safe space, we've also had an very close to you, like the rash of the sidewalk cafe and restaurant arm robberies right. where you were just sitting having brunch and all of a sudden you have a gun in your face but it really seems as if they are like you said targeting people who are inexpensive cars there was another high profile case where a victim was run into on the freeway crashed into purposefully pulled over and then several people got out of several cars to rob him so whether wearing expensive clothes or luxury watches or expensive cars there really seems to be this targeting that has contributed to a fear for people's safety in Los Angeles in, in the last few years. So let's talk a little bit now about what drives these crimes, like what would be in the motivating factors that encourages criminals to take these types of actions as opposed to other types of criminal acts. We're not surprised at all about the the effect on the victims, as you talked about. I mean, those you, we kind of just went through those bullet points really quickly, but, you know, I just want to kind of go back a second and, and remind people that the effects of the traumatic events like that can be long-term chronic and severe. And really, I encourage anyone who has ever experienced something like this or knows someone who's experienced like this, get help and get treatment because you may be planting a seed for trauma responses in the future that need to be addressed. But the drive behind the crimes, what what is going on? How, how does a criminal consider this to be an option? And it's complex, really. I mean, most predominant factor in any kind of crime like this clearly is going to be economic gain. The perpetrators could believe that breaking into a particularly well-appointed home could get them access to cash, valuables, weapons. Weapons is like always a really important thing to go for or for other items that could be sold for profit. It's fascinating to me because I just 
who keeps that much cash in their house that would be attractive that I guess some people do, or maybe it's jewelry and those valuable things. Right. But then like you were saying, maybe they've also targeted particular individuals that they know to carry large amounts of cash or goods. Like you said, business owners, jewelry dealers, very big target there, but rarely is the robbery done at a second location, like in our story today, where they yeah. pick the person up and go, it's still That's just station. too risky. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. really, really risky. Well, and plus the whole, you know, kidnapping thing. So, but while not always a factor, I think we need to talk about the influence of substance abuse, which can, of course, impair judgment and lower inhibitions leading individuals to commit acts that that might not consider while sober. And that could include violent and aggressive acts like home invasion robberies. And in situations where individuals are disinhibited, they may be more likely to also engage in assaultive behaviors. So again, the impulsiveness to this might have them take a little bit more risk and just do something that they wouldn't normally do if there's this sort of sense of desperation for any case, whether it's um, trying to obtain more substances due to an addiction issue, or maybe it is economic gain and they're just in this disinhibited space. But I think we also can't dismiss what kind of feels like is on the other end of the spectrum, which is power and control. So for some offenders, the primary motivation behind a home invasion could be the desire for power of and control and intimidation. So breaking into someone's home and overpowering the residents there can give that intruder a huge sense of dominance. And we particularly see this with organized gang-related crimes, especially when they feel the need to keep power and control over a particular neighborhood and the Uh, residents in that neighborhood. By setting Um, an example. Exactly, exactly. Setting an example, whether it's in like sort of retribution for something or just we have to continue to assert our dominance in this area. So for career criminals, a recurring theme is a lack of empathy and what we would call moral disengagement. Those are definitely potential key psychological factors in the perpetration of these crimes. And, you know, sort of following up on your power and control, perpetrators may dehumanize the victims or use their own moral disengagement to justify these kind of actions because they convince themselves that their actions are acceptable or deserved. Certainly there's a lot of entitlement that comes with any type of criminality, right? And this goes back to the factor of significant financial disparity, which can fuel disinhibition. That's a very big topic that's being researched today in crime is financial disparity. But certainly a lack of empathy can emerge from organic or traumatic experiences. And then again, we always encourage, you know, the bigger picture to look at the environment in which the perpetrator was grown up, or we always want to look at the environment where the perpetrator was raised, right? Was there exposure to violence? Was there exposure to crime, socioeconomic challenges, all of these factors that can influence the likelihood of justifying the engagement in criminal behaviors? Again, not saying that there's a correlation. I want to be very clear here, but these are factors that you can't dismiss when you're looking at the big picture. Yeah, the data just lists those starkly as risk factors. Right. So while our example today illustrates a single perpetrator invading a space, 
and we don't know about this boss, <laughs> but the possibility of peer influence and group dynamics is also something to consider as well and something that can be a very strong risk factor, particularly with younger offenders. This is the desire to impress or gain acceptance from a group, which can push individuals to participate in criminal activities, including home invasions, because oftentimes home invasions include multiple people because they're having to control multiple victims. So this ties into another drive that we see as well, which is thrill-seeking. And we've talked about this a lot in different types of offenses, but this is you know, the adrenaline rush or the excitement that they draw from the risk and the danger involved in a particular risky crime, like breaking into somebody's home. So in some cases, individuals with unaddressed or improperly managed mental health conditions can commit home invasions. However, this begs the question as to whether they're mentally ill. You know, I myself have worked with cases that were referred to me regarding home invasions that end up being a result of an individual with severe delusions or paranoia or other symptoms of their mental health diagnoses that have impaired their judgment to the extent that they wildly misinterpret what is going on around them. There are people, and this is actually has to do with sort of the ubiquity and the access of social media and businesses online. We actually here in Southern California do have a phenomenon where people come from around the country and around the world after looking at Zillow and Trulia and their their delusional process convinces them that they own these homes. So they're wow. breaking into homes that they think they own, and then they may then engage in assaultive behaviors of the owners of the home because they're saying, why are you in my house? I, I live here. It's like erotomania for homes. Yeah, it's really strange. And thankfully, it's very rare. But just the cases where it's happened where, you know, can you imagine? I mean, we talk about the psychological impact of the trauma of a home invasion, yeah. you know, you as a, as a parent, like thinking of like, I've got to protect my child like that to right. me, I'm not a parent. That would be terrifying for me. Absolutely terrifying. But then the flip of it is, is that what if your mental state has convinced you that you're in the, you're in the right here and right. you have to protect your home against these people that are walking into your home. So complex when it gets to cases like that. But again, thankfully very rare. And I would want to close with an example, uh, one of the people on my caseload when I worked in uh, corrections was an inmate with, I think he was sentenced to life. He was a lifer. Yeah, he was a lifer for a home invasion robbery. And I was had, you know, as part of my work responsibilities, I had read the entire criminal file and done a lot of work. And this was, this guy was really great to work with. And one of the ones that just completely owned up to everything he did and did not minimize it at all. And there was a reason also that he was motivated to engage in therapy. This is someone who over the decade of being imprisoned had really done a lot of work on himself, but all of his was driven by drugs. He and two of his colleagues were absolute like meth and heroin addicts. Yeah. And it was very interesting for this individual to utilize therapy of how now that I've been clean for 10 years, now that I've been in a recovery program, now I'm dealing with the true weight of the guilt of what I've done. I terrorize those people. We, you know, I use, I, I beat a man in front of his children 
to in- intimidate. We threaten the kid. I mean, it's just, it's a big picture. And he, you could see this person, like he did have remorse. It's also like he didn't, there was nothing I could give him that he could use to manipulate me. Like, you know, he wasn't seeking. Right Now, is it that, is it possible that there was a long game being played? Absolutely. But I'm just giving you a snippet of what my experience was working yeah. with someone in this he, position. He was a lifer and he was doing the work. Yeah. And he's not going anywhere. So like that takes away a lot of motivation right there. So interesting, interesting stuff. I hope none of us ever have to experience such a crime like this. Yeah. Well, and for the record, I've looked at Zillow and fallen in love with homes too. So yeah, homes I can't have. Yeah. Same here. (laughs) Same here. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us for our vintage case episode this month of January, 2024. I think that's all I got, Scott. Anything you have? No, this has been great. Thank you so much. Interesting case with not a lot of information, but it it's, it is uh, planting a spark or lighting a spark for an interesting conversation about this particular type of crime. Everybody, we've got our live stream coming up. Please check that out. As we said at the beginning, we've also got like a potential competition we're in for an award, which is wonderful to hear about. We'll keep you posted. Yeah. Look for our social media and we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye guys. Bye folks. sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.